John chapter number 19. John chapter number 19. John 19. Appreciate your involvement in the service today. I trust that the Lord has blessed you. I feel like there's a, a tiredness or a, almost a deadness in the auditorium at this moment. It's been a long couple of weeks, months, and uh, so everybody's a little more tired than normal, so you may need to slap yourself a little bit. Uh, I do want to publicly thank you for all of the work that you did on Kelly's wedding um, and for the help, especially afterwards. I was figuring that we would be here for many, many, many hours, and a ton of people showed back up over there to the other building and tore the thing down. I really appreciate all of that help. It is greatly appreciated, and uh, they're off and running and went in the ditch on the way after their honeymoon. They went on the ditch yesterday or day before, whenever it was. Uh, they don't do well, those Alabamians on snow, and so... We're in John chapter number 19. <clears throat> I'm not sure what makes for good preaching. I don't know if you ever consider that, but it is part of my responsibility. What makes for good preaching? If you ask 100 pastors and homiletics professors what makes for good preaching, you would probably get 100 different answers. There have been hundreds of books that have been written on how to construct sermons. Spurgeon's book actually includes all those kind of instructions, but it also tells you how to use your arms, when to wave them, and when not to wave them, and all of that. You know, there's not very many full messages recorded in Scripture that we can get a, a good grasp on. You have Stephen's message, it's recorded almost in entirety, and of course he covers almost the entire Bible in his one message in, there in the book of Acts. Of course you have Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what do you do with that? I'm guessing that 100 million messages have been preached from that one message. So where do you start in trying to make and build a message in fashion as the Sermon on the Mount? When you factor in personalities and culture and the size of the congregation... And the times and the individual needs and the circumstances, the definition of good preaching gets very elusive. I can only come up with one really good definition of, preaching, of good preaching. Truth taught by the Holy Spirit. I think that is about as good a definition as we're going to get. That's a good message. Truth taught by the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter how long or short the message is, how easy to listen to, how informative, how biblically accurate, or how homiletically sound. If we don't have truth taught by the Holy Spirit, what we have got is absolutely nothing. So that's what we're after this morning, truth taught by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure that this morning's message would not pass through a filter of proper sermon construction. That's the way it is. This week, 
I spent some very precious time with the Lord in this passage of Scripture. So I'm just going to share that with you. Not going to, it won't pass the three-point outline thought and all the homiletics that they teach you. It's not going to pass any of that. But I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will teach you as he taught me this week. And you will see the wonders of this passage as I did this week. John chapter number 19, verse number 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. We'll take that last phrase as the title of the message. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's pray. Father, we look to you, knowing that if you do not allow your spirit to teach us, we will not be taught. But we marvel at what your spirit could teach us. And how far you could take us in this one service with the tired minds that we have, with the busyness of how the schedule has been. Lord, if your spirit would move, then we could be moved. And we ask that he would do so in the service this morning. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There are several Old Testament prophecies concerning the Lord's death. In fact, we just read two of them. The first one we won't spend any time on this morning, uh, but it is a prophecy that the bone of the Lord would not be broken. But we will look at the second one in some great depth this morning. They shall look on him whom they pierced. This is a prophecy that was made in Zechariah chapter number 12. They shall look on him whom they pierced. As I sat in my office early this week, I was contemplating this statement. And the scene from the crucifixion started to form in my mind. Now the old timers would say that a picture is worth thousand words, but we don't have a picture here, and so we're going to have to make that, so we're going to have to use a, more than a thousand words to conjure this picture up in our brain so that we can see this. It is a very sacred scene, and so we'll be very careful as we do this, but see if you cannot get your mind to see this scene. The lifeless body of the Lord Jesus is hanging on a rough wooden cross. That is the central part of our picture. It's a famous, you know, you've, seen, you've actually seen pictures of this, but see if you cannot get that to come into your mind. The lifeless body of the Lord hanging on that cross. Can you see him there, bruised, beaten, 
bleeding. More than likely still wearing the thorn of crowns. And his back is raw from the lash of the cat of nine tails. Can you see this? He has been hanging there for hours. And now he is dead. The sky is eeriously or maybe ominously dark as the Lord Jesus hangs there in open shame. Can you picture this in your mind's eye? The Lord hanging there, his lifeless body. A lone figure hanging dead on the cross. But he is not alone. The hymn we sing says he died alone for you and me. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't other people around. In fact, there were quite a few other people. We're going to try to fill out this picture as we think about the other people in this scene. The hour is getting late. The bodies must not be hanging there much longer. And so they, the soldiers approaches the lifeless body. Picture this in your mind. The, a soldier approaches the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus with a spear. He is sure that he is dead. He knows a dead body when he sees it. He is an old hand at this. Crucifixion was no stranger, something strange for the Romans. They did it all the time. He knows that the Lord Jesus is dead. But just to make sure, just to make sure that there can be no doubt, he takes a spear and plunges it mercilessly into, underneath the rib cage and into the heart of the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't realize it at the time, but he is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. They shall look on him whom they pierced. It is a gruesome scene, to be sure, the stabbing of a dead body with a spear. It's one our minds would rather not think about. But think about the prophecy that was made. Not only does it say that the Lord Jesus would be pierced, it says, they shall look upon him. So in our scene, we have the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus being stabbed with a spear. But we have others around him who are looking. The, the Old Testament prophecy said, people will look at what they have done. So let's expand our picture to include these other characters. What were they seeing as they pierced the Lord in his side? As we fill out the scene, probably the closest people to the Lord would be the two thieves. There are two thieves, one hanging on either side of the Lord Jesus, who are being crucified as well. Early in the day, they had been criticizing the Lord. They had been mocking him. They had been uh, having fun, if you want, would say that, with the Lord Jesus as mocking him that he should take them down and, and so forth. Somewhere along the time in the day, one of the thieves decides, you know what? After watching the Lord Jesus, he decides, 
this is truly the Son of God, and he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, from this thief, we do get some hope, okay, that a deathbed conversion, a late-term conversion does happen in people. But don't get too much comfort from that. Lots of people say, you know, one of these days I'm going to get saved. One of these days, they keep putting off Christ. One of these days. My friend, that is a very dangerous thing to do. The thief on the cross, actually one of them did get saved. But think about what is going on. What did they see when the Lord's side was pierced? Now, you've got to put yourself into the whole proximity. You've got to draw the whole picture. Before the, the Lord was pierced with a side, before the soldier did that, the other two who had been hanging there for quite some time, all day in fact, what happened to them just previous to this piercing? A soldier had taken a club of some variety and broken both of their legs. So as the soldier pierces the Lord with a spear, there are two men, one on hanging on either side of him, who aren't seeing anything at this moment. They are hanging there with two broken legs. The pain, if you can imagine what that would be like, would be excruciating. And they are, the reason they would break their legs is because if, you, if your legs are still intact, you can lift yourself up and you can breathe. But by breaking their legs, they can no longer support themselves, and so they are literally suffocating to death at this moment. As the Lord's sight is pierced, these two men are gasping their last breath. They don't see anything. They have no consciousness, really, of what's taking place with the Lord whatsoever. They are in their own little world full of pain. And we might want to mark that down if we're putting off our accepting the Lord. You know what? Life doesn't always go exactly like we think, and there may not be any time. There may be other circumstances that would be involved when it comes my last, and I may not put my trust in Christ like I think I would. We'd better be a little careful on that. These two thieves hang there with broken legs. It's too late, really, for them to look at the Lord. The next closest people, if we're drawing our picture, you get the picture in your mind. You have the lifeless body of the Lord with a soldier there piercing his side and two thieves who are gasping out their breath. The next closest people in the scene would be the the soldiers. Now these men were stone-cold killers. The Romans were used to crucifying people. They had been doing it for quite some time. It was not merely a method of putting people to death. They could have done that with their little sword. Crucifixion was meant to torture. You could keep a guy alive almost indefinitely on that cross, and until you were ready to dispatch him, you could torture him there as long as you felt led. In fact, they used it as a means of keeping everybody in line. They would conquer a country and they would crucify sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of people at a time in order to let people know, you don't mess with us. This is going to happen to you if you mess with us. They would sometimes line the roads like telephone posts with crucified victims hanging there. 
to, as a warning to everybody to stay in line. To the soldiers, what did they see? They shall look on him whom they pierced. Well, what do they see? To them, it's just another day on the job. They did their work with savage efficiency. They made the day go faster by taunting and mocking their victims. They gave them something to do while they're waiting for this person to die. So they would mock them and taunt them. In this case, they tried to profit from their victim by gambling over the Lord's clothing, his vesture that they didn't want to tear, so they gambled for it. So they're trying to profit from his death. And even when the, the soldier stabs the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus, he doesn't know that he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He's just doing his job, making sure. But what does he see? They shall look on him whom they pierced. This has been just a typical day at work. It's hard to get your mind to wrap around that. But this has just been a typical day at work for them. Except, if you read the, the account of this, when the earthquake took place and the sky went dark, these soldiers who had seen all kinds of death got really scared. And one of the centurion, the centurion, the guy who's over him, said, truly, this was the Son of God. Absolutely. So we have men, what do they see? They're standing there with remorse. This, whatever we've been involved in today, was not a typical day at work. This is something we should not have done. We have the soldiers there standing. A little farther out, you find ladies watching the event. This is kind of hard to get your mind to wrap around. But we have multiple ladies standing there. Mary, uh, the mother of the Lord Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and several others are there. Imagine, in your mind's eye, what these ladies have experienced over the last few hours. Think about the difficulty of all of this. To have watched the Lord suffer to have watched someone who you love in, under such abuse. And these ladies have stayed there the entire time watching this event. And think about what they saw and what they experienced as the soldier takes that spear. Now up until that time, had they got, had they had the power within them, they would have overpowered the soldiers and they would have gotten the Lord Jesus down to, quote unquote, what they would have said, save his life. They would have done whatever, but they had no power to do these things. And when that sword pierces the Lord's heart, Mary understands what she had been told over 30 years ago. When Simeon, who holds the Lord Jesus in the temple, says, And a sword shall pierce through thine own heart also. And Mary, what does she see as they look on him whom they have pierced? She sees her son definitively dead. 
Think about the difficulty of that as these ladies watch and experience absolute grief in this, in this scene. Some of the disciples are there as well. Have you ever tried to imagine what they were thinking as they watched the spear plunge into the heart of the Lord Jesus? Now you gotta th- you gotta put yourself into their position. They had believed that he was the Messiah. They had for three and a half years spent lots of time with him, learning from him and following him. They had believed that he was going to restore Israel back into its glory days and restore the kingdom. They had hooked themselves to him. They were riding his coattails, if you want. They were following him. Now remember in the garden... When push comes to shove, they run. Can you not put yourself in their position as they're thinking, where did this all go wrong? Should we have stayed and fought? What should we have done differently? As they watch their leader, their master, a sword pierce his heart, this is over. It's done with. And what can we possibly, where did we go wrong? They are standing there with nothing but questions. What happened? Why? Where did we fail? Should we have fought a little more at the Garden of Gethsemane? And how could we not have seen that Judas Iscariot was the bad guy? How did we not catch that? Can you not see all the questions that would be running through their mind as they watch this event? But there are others there. In that crowd of people, we also find the chief priests and the Pharisees. You realize for the last three years, the Lord has been a sore spot for them. His teaching to the people has exposed them for who they really were. His work that he was doing was beyond anything that they could do. He was doing miracles and they had no miracles to do. They had created an entire religious system that covered their greed and corruption. And that system was being called into question. His words were, they were always able to argue. These were the educated people of the day and they were always able to argue everybody under the table. But the Lord Jesus' words were too powerful. They could not debate him. In fact, when they sent the debaters, they came back and said, never man spake like this man. They couldn't trap him, they couldn't get him, and their people, their followers, were slowly seeing all of this truth and beginning to leave them and follow the Lord. Time and time again they had plotted and to destroy him or discredit him, and those plots had failed. Until Judas Iscariot approached them, And once this happened, it seemed like everything fell into place. Everything that they had been trying to do and had not been able to do for the last over three years now was falling into place. They shall look on him whom they pierced. What did they see? 
what was going through their mind as they see that spear plunge into the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus. Can you not put yourself in their position? They are rejoicing in their heart. This is, they have just gotten rid of a rival. Their troubles are over. The one that they have struggled with for so long, they finally got this taken care of and things can get back to normal. Can you not see them there wringing their hands with delight as the spear plunges into the lifeless body of the Lord? This is done. And they rejoice in a greedy, evil sort of way as they look on him whom they pierced. Now we've described the individual parts. See if you can put the whole scene together into one picture. The lifeless body of the Lord Jesus is hanging there and is pierced with a spear. The two thieves are hanging there with broken legs, gasping their final breath. The soldiers who have been, they just thought this was a, a normal day at work, are having second thoughts. The ladies are watching and are crying bitter tears of grief. The disciples are trying to figure out what went wrong. And the chief priests and rulers and the Pharisees are wringing their hands with fiendish delight that they have eliminated their rival. They shall look on him whom they pierced. But can I ask you, what value is there in what they see? They see remorse, regret, grief, and greedy pleasure. What value is there in that? It all seems like such a waste. But it's even worse than that. If you want to get a shock, keep that picture firmly in your mind. And I want you to contemplate and compare it with a second scene. Put yourself in Genesis chapter number 1 and 2 where the Lord has just made man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. A perfect, happy, content place in full fellowship with God. Now compare those two pictures. Can you think of two more opposite scenes than that? A perfect world where God is fellowshipping with man. And this disastrous, covetous, grief-filled, remorseful, greedy little mess. And you say, boy, those are totally complete opposites. We shudder when we think about the contrast. But what must God think as he looks on the scene? They shall look on him whom they pierce. We understand, boy, there is nothing worth seeing there. There's no value there. 
What does God see? And it's interesting. It is only from God's viewpoint that the cross has any value. It is only from God's vantage point that this has significance. They look on him whom they pierced, and they see only regret and remorse and revenge from those people's eyes. But what does God see when he looks on this scene? Well, first off, don't get mistaken here. There are obvious things that God sees. He does see the rebellion of the world. When God looks onto this scene, he sees the rebellion of the... He knows the world he created, and he knows what man chose. And man chose to go his own way. And this miserable scene that we have just described here in this auditorium, he find, that man finds himself in that, is just the end result of the choice that he made so many years ago. A world filled with wickedness, greedy pleasure, revenge, remorse, regret, and grief. God sees the rebellion of the world. They shall look on him. He is pierced. When God sees this scene, he also sees the world's value of his son. It's tough to get our minds to go here, but this is what we really actually see. We see the world's value on the son of God. You know, the Bible gives a, par a parable about this in Luke chapter number 20. But let's... Let's put it down. He, they use a husbandman and so forth in this parable. But let's put it into today's vernacular so that we can really get a grasp on this. Suppose that you owned an apartment complex. And you have rented all of the, the apartments in this complex out to people. And you find that they are not paying the rent. So you send the, your apartment manager to collect the rents. And when they go to, he goes from apartment to apartment, the, the renters gang up on him and beat him up. And you say, he, he says to you, I'm done. I don't want this job anymore. It's too tough. So you, rent, you hire another manager. And that manager goes door to door, and they beat him up. So then you hire a, pro, this is a process server, isn't it, who has to hand out eviction notices. You send that guy to these apartment complexes, and they beat the daylights out of him. And you decide, you know what, I could call in the cops here, but I've known these people who are renting from me for a long time, and I've always been gracious to them. I've been, tried to be as kind as I can. They know my family, and I know them. And so you decide to send your son. Because it would be an act of goodwill to send your son there. To, maybe your son, he's very good at communicating, and he can maybe smooth this out and get this all taken care of. And when your son goes to this apartment complex that you own, the renters look in out there and say, hey, here comes the son. He's the one who's going to inherit this. If we get rid of him, then there will be no owner of the building. And they murder your son in cold blood. What are you going to do about that?
the passage in Luke 20 is a very close parallel to what I just said. The passage says, He will destroy those people. Do you understand what that means? God understands the rebellion. God understands. He sees the value that this world has placed on his son. Now let's take a very quick aside here. I think it is important that we remember that the world's opinion has not changed with Jesus Christ. They hated him then and they hate him now. We know this intrinsically. But think about what God thinks about that rebellion and their despising of his son. Get that firmly in your mind when he says he will destroy those wicked men who have done this thing. That's what the parable says. Too often... As we live here on this planet, we are very quick to adopt the ideas, the attitudes, the pleasures, the thoughts, the values, the programs, the standards, the speech, the entertainment, the culture, and the lifestyle of the sworn enemies of God. Did you catch that? The world despises Jesus Christ. But how often have you made choices? How often have you patterned your life, your decisions, your loves, your involvement, your hobbies, your whatever, 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 after the sworn enemies of God? Does it not stand to reason that we should distance ourselves as far as possible from those people? Yes. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And very often, we try to mimic the life and attitude that this world has. My friend, that is a very dangerous thing. When God looked down from heaven, they shall look on him whom he's pierced. He didn't miss the fact that they were in, the world was in rebellion and that they despised his son. And he plans on dealing with that. And it would behoove us to be as far away from that as possible. And when we make our decisions, we had better make sure that they are not of this world. God sees the rebellion of the world and he sees the world's value of his son. But in, verse, in this passage, in this scene created in John 19, we have one really interesting truth. One thing that's particular that should stand out in our minds. We find the wrath of God not focused on the soldier who is crucifying him. We find the wrath of God not focused on the chief priests who are standing there wringing their hands with delight as he dies. We find the wrath of God not focused on the disciples who betrayed him. Where do we find the wrath of God focused? Yeah. 
on Jesus Christ himself. Did not Christ say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For in this scene, what we really see, what God is seeing, is the completion of a plan. When Adam sinned in the garden, man was irreversibly separated from God. He was doomed and condemned with nothing he would do. There was only one solution. A valuable, sinless substitute must come, become man, and die in man's place. When God the Father looked on this scene, what he saw was the rebellion of the world and the, the way that the world despised his son but he also saw the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. He saw our sin placed on the Lord Jesus being paid in full. He saw the law being satisfied. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Our Lord said on the cross, it is finished. A plan that was implemented because of love. This is what God sees. They shall look on him whom they pierced. What that God looks and sees is a plan that is coming to completion that was begun, implemented because of love, for God so loved the world. Three days later, this plan would be shown to be complete as the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. And what God sees in this scene is a completion of a plan put in place because he loves you. That's what this scene shows. This is what God sees when he sees what is written here when this took place. They shall look on him whom they pierced. When we see what they saw, all the people standing around, we see regret, remorse, and greedy revenge. But when we see what God saw, sure we see man's rebellion and we see man's hatred for Christ, but we see salvation's plan completed. They shall look on him whom they pierced. It is only from God's viewpoint that this scene has any value. And whose view are you living in? Let's pray.